Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hi, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, the number one global business show for entrepreneurs. Now, I began this uh, program on a 13-week trial over three years ago, and uh, we're getting bigger and better and stronger than ever. We're getting great guests, and I hope you continue to, to enjoy the show. This is your no-bullshit business radio show. We don't talk about whether stocks have gone up five cents or down five cents. We talk about how you can perform better in business. We give, try to give you tips every week on new things that are happening in the marketplace and give you some guides on how steps you may take to be able to improve your business. I had a bit of a listen to some of the shows in the archives the other day and um, there are some fantastic um, tips in there for any business. I think if you, if you, if you listen to all of the shows all 151 of them, then you will find an amazing amount of information that can help any business. And there's also interviews with about 180 people and uh, successful people, entrepreneurs that have been out there and have done it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of mistakes to be made for um, small business. And uh, by listening to what other entrepreneurs have done, and how they've solved the challenges that they've faced, it could save you a hell of a lot of grief. So we just want to give you practical advice and bring you the latest on what's happening in business around the world. Now, last week, you'll remember, we discussed Forgetnik, which enables you to send an email which self-destructs in 24 hours. Now, most emails... Um, or, or most messages when you send them, even if they do destruct and you can't see them in 24 hours, a, a forensic computer scientist can go into the hard drive and find them. You know, anything you wipe off your um, uh, computer can be found by a forensic engineer. So if you truly want your emails to disappear and not be able to be found on your hard drive, forget Nick. F-O-R-G-E-T, forget, Nick, N-I-C, enables you to do just that. After 24 hours, it's gone and no one can find it. Well, this week, Confide, which is a Snapchat for adults, just got even better and faster. Now, Confide, for those of you who don't know, it's a private channel for discussing secretive information and Unlike other messaging apps like, say, Snapchat, um, Confide is text only, and it's text only for a reason. It's really targeting professionals. So rather than encouraging people to switch over from my message or to change their habits, Confide's designed to function as a secure link for those looking to keep their conversations totally under the radar. So because of the app's workplace focus, 
Confide only requires an email address to sign up. There's no need to connect on Facebook or input a phone number or do anything like that. So you simply use an email address to sign up and you're away. Now, when you send a message, you encrypt it with a key that only you can decrypt. Only you know your decoding scheme. So it's also got a nifty screenshot prevention feature. You know, with a with a regular message, you can screenshot it and you keep it forever. And that can be very dangerous um, because people do write a lot of stuff and send a lot of photographs um, that they don't think of being um, snapped and uh, used later for you or again you. So it's got a nifty screenshot prevention feature that covers up the words of the message. So in order to read the message, you drag your finger along the screen and it only reveals those few words at a time. So it prevents screenshots. If you take a screenshot, you're only going to get a couple of words. So it makes it much more difficult for anybody else to use. And this newest update processes messages 12 times faster and introduces a design that makes messages feel a lot more like messages and not so much like an email. So if somebody does try to get creative and take a screenshot, they'll just get a couple of words. And then as soon as that happens, the app kicks you out. It deletes the message from your phone and from confide services, servers, and uh, alerts the senders. So it, um, if you try to screenshot it, it just um, deletes the message from your phone and from um, confide servers, and uh, it tells the person who's sending it to you that you're trying to screenshot it. So that's probably the last message you ever get from them. Now, since confidentiality is a key, Confide also deletes messages after you've finished reading them. So um, it solves a fundamental problem in the messaging space, which is retaining messages and also stops people from taking screenshots. So if you want to give the new version of Confide a try, you can download the app for free on iOS and Android. Confide, C-O-N-F-I-D-E. Now, Martin West and Mark Bragg send out a lot of very useful information. And during the week, they came up with an article about the three startup killers and how to avoid them. So any of you that are um, got a startup, this is for you. So, you know, you've designed your product. You look like you're on a winner. Everybody loves it. Um, VCs are calling you and you're into your second round of funding. You're hiring. The growth curves look great. The future's looking pretty damn good. You're looking for success. You're out there focusing on the future and roaring along. You're not looking for landmines. But In any business, there are serious new challenges ahead. Each one is powerful enough to kill your growth stone dead in an instant. 
And according to um, Martin and Mark, business killer number one is a degenerating culture. Now, this is really important because it happens all the time. Um, you know, the number of times you hear an entrepreneur say, God, it's not like, you remember what it used to be like when there was just the three of us? Remember how cool that was and the energy and the effort and all the ups and the downs and how great it was? Well, five people or three people have got a totally different environment. Everything's different than if you've got 10 or if you've got 100. That intimacy, that um, excitement is, is to some degree lost. So the working environment, because the relationships change, the working environment's going to change too. And uh, a whole bunch of new behaviours are going to raise their head. And they're not necessarily good. The culture of your enterprise is, is shift. And if you don't act quickly to manage it, things can degenerate pretty quickly. You get a lot more friction, a lot more problems. So you need to see this coming early on need to be able to foresee it or at least see it as it happens, realise the potential dangers of this, prepare, and then you've got to act to mitigate any risks. Now, to get your culture right within a company, you must deliberately choose the people and the types of behaviour that you require for success. I mean, having the most brilliant guy in the world join your company is no good if they're not a team player, if they are aggressive, if they're obnoxious, no matter how smart they are, they'll ruin your company. So you need to establish a a simple handful of specific statements that'll clearly lay out what every member of the team will and will not do. And by doing this, you protect, develop and nurture the company's core values and their culture. Some examples of of these statements might be um, performance and results always come first. Second one might be we just don't tolerate bullshit here. Third one might be we'll never work in silos. Everybody is part of a team. We take our work seriously but not ourselves. So work smart, play hard. This is a really important one. We leave our egos and all our baggage at the door. That is very important. And we treat people with respect always. And I think the another one that's important is our customer always comes first. So you can create a, a whole series of statements around what the team will and won't do. So grouped under the company's core values, which is high performance, no bullshit, and be good at it. In order for that to become the company culture, the leadership team must buy into it and they must live it daily or the company is going to fail. Then you've got to ensure that this culture is embedded at all levels right across the business. Then from day one, each new team member knows exactly what is and what isn't 
acceptable in terms of behaviour. Now, company culture impacts everything. It impacts behaviour, the actions that people take every day, the way they communicate, the way they treat each other. I mean, it even influences the way that you think and feel. And more than anything, probably, it has a direct impact on your abilities to successfully execute strategy. So when you define a goal, an objective or a strategy, there's a specific set of behaviours required to achieve a successful outcome for that goal. So act and behave in the wrong way and you'll fail. Get it right, you'll succeed. So the very first question a leader needs to ask is, how do we need to behave in order to achieve our goals? So memorialise them, put them up on the walls in everybody's cubicle or everybody's whatever they work in and make sure that everybody stays on track. Business killer number two is wasted resources. It's amazing how often startups in particular, but not always, realise that been working on the wrong thing for months and months and months and uh, shut down major development projects in order to change course and focus their resources in another area when they realise that what they were doing is not working. Now, every company obviously has to be ready to pivot. It's a rapidly changing business environment. You really not don't necessarily know what other people in the same field as you are doing across the world, but it does kill a lot of companies because you've got a finite amount of time and a finite really amount of motivation, I guess, initially, and the more you pivot, the more you eat money and the more you um, take away some of the drive. You can do without a lot of things while you're growing a business, but money isn't one of them, you know, and with each round of funding comes increased pressure to use that um, capital most effectively to drive growth. Now, if you waste it, if you waste that money, it will eventually kill you. And uh, the biggest waste will come from not getting the most from your primary resource, which is your people. You know, you can't afford to squander their talent, their time, or that effort. So um, the most most important decision is, is, I guess, deciding what to stop doing. It's very hard when you've worked on something for months and months and months to suddenly suddenly turn around and say, oops, we're on the wrong track here. We need to, um, we need to change course. Each project, each activity and even daily tasks need to be evaluated against the question, will this help us win in the end? In other words, if if we're engaged in anything that does not directly impact overall goals and objectives, we need to get rid of it. In short, every team needs to be absolutely clear on the answer to probably these three questions. How will we, will we measure success? What are the top three measurable goals? What do we need to focus on to be successful? What are the key initiatives we need to take? And thirdly, what does each person in the team 
need to execute to contribute to this success. So stop wasting resources. Be clear about what's expected for each team and each individual and stop doing stuff that doesn't count. I mean, first of all, you get the first whack of money and it's very easy to spend it very quickly, much more quickly than you intend to. You have to be frugal right from the start. Or not necessarily frugal, but use your money wisely. And business killer number three is poor execution. You know, a, a business environment's dynamic and the ground is constantly moving underneath your feet. In that type of environment, you know, you've got to be really disciplined. And that's the most important principle for startups in the growth phase. Be disciplined. And uh, Charles Darwin said, it is not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. And uh, building an execution discipline that allows you to handle change and still get things right involves just three things. First of all, you've got to be certain that people are focused on the right things. Each person's work needs to be clear and focused, and in any given period, whether it be a day or a week or a quarter, you need to be able to answer, what are the three top things I must execute now? So get disciplined, get prioritized, and go for it. You've got to get visibility on performance. Visibility brings high levels of accountability. So both team and individual performance needs to be completely transparent and it needs to be visible 24-7. You need to know precisely how each team and each individual is performing. So you really need to um, set expectations and clear goals around that execution and performance from the onset and then review progress regularly. You need to build a team meeting discipline. You have to build a sound meeting discipline that's focused on the execution of strategy and improved performance. Execution's dynamic and things are always changing. So the only way to stay on top of executing a strategy successfully is to instill a weekly team meeting discipline that allows you and your team to thrive in that environment. Every time you have one of these meetings, you should come out of it with renewed energy, a clearer idea of what everybody's working towards and where everybody's at, and um, it really helps. Now, success requires a finely balanced approach to all three business killers. And you can make the case this is true for any enterprise, but in a startup, where you're under real pressure with limited resources, all three are amplified tenfold and the dangers become much more immediate. Another thing that came out during the week is that Uber and Lyft, you know, they're battling it out head-to-head across the country um, to be the app for replacing the taxi industry and between them they're doing a fantastic job and I love it. Unfortunately for Lyft, it seems that Uber has by far the upper hand at the moment. A new report shows that Uber is dominating in terms of revenue, riders, revenues per rider, and absolute growth rates. It is winning right across the board. Now, this um, 
This report analysed data tracking 3.8 million active credit card users in the US, 96,000 of them are which are using one of the two services. The data tracks the users for 12 months. And uh, Uber's revenue is 12 times that of Lyft, with $26 million going to Uber and only $2 million going to Lyft in the 12 months. Uber also provided more than seven times the rides that Lyft does, and Uber provided 1.23 million rides compared to Lyft's only 170,000. And Uber seems to be charging more per ride. The average Uber ride is $21. The average Lyft ride is only $13. So um, Uber's adding customers five times faster, provides riders six times faster, and grew revenue more than 10 times faster than Lyft. So one would suspect that Lyft could be in a bit of trouble. And the other thing that it showed is that people are really polarised polarized already, that um, there are very few people who aren't loyal to one or the other. People either use one or the other. And... Uh, Uber has got that pretty well nailed. So you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become more successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Sign up for my newsletter and we'll answer it on air or email you directly. Directly, Incidentally, and my monthly newsletter goes out to 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. So uh, we get rave reviews. And interestingly, I was just looking the other day, the 16,000 that went out in September, we only had two unsubscribes. So obviously about 16 million people are very happy with the information that they get. I'll be back in a moment with Richard Pink. Richard's a great guy. He's a friend of mine. He's a lawyer with two degrees, and he's also the owner of the famous Pink Hot Dogs. Yay! If you haven't been to Pink's Hot Dogs in Los Angeles, you should go. It's an institution. It is fantastic. But apart from that, he's also the West Coast Managing Director of Clarion Partners, which is a real estate investment management company. Richard wears many hats, and he's a really cool guy, and I'll be back with him in just a moment. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want the world to know you're a force to be reckoned with? If so, you must join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management, America's foremost accreditation institute. You'll be amazed at how AISMM can open doors that you can't. Increase your prestige and influence. Add the letters AISMM after your name. Apply now. Go to AISMM.org. Again, that's AISMM.org. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? 
Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where we try to give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's extraordinary people. What makes them tick? Most extraordinary people that I've ever met began life in average, ordinary circumstances like most of us. So what makes them turn out interesting, unusual and great? Well, this is the segment where we find out. My guest today in this segment is Richard Pink, and he does a lot of things, but the one that I find fascinating is that he's president of Pink's Hot Dogs, Inc., which is a landmark hot dog stand located in Hollywood, and it serves over 2,000 hot dogs a day. (laughs) That's a hell of a lot of hot dogs. Pink's was started 70 years ago by Richard's parents, Paul and Betty Pink. In 1984, Richard and his wife took over the operations, and since that time they've created over 30 combinations of hot dogs and over a dozen combinations of hamburgers to satisfy the variety of tastes of its patrons, which includes a lot of ordinary people like you and me, but an awful lot of movie and TV stars and celebrities and all sorts of people that are um, famous. Hot dogs such as the bacon chili cheese dog and the Polish salami Swiss cheese dog, (laughs) sound great don't they, have led to Pink's dining room being filled with over 200 pictures of celebrities with signed endorsements of their love for Pink's hot dogs. It's it's quite an amazing place. I mean it's it's um it's really unique and you think after all they're hot dogs. Now Pink's has recently expanded through licensing arrangements into Vegas and on the strip at Planet Hollywood Hotel, they're at Knott's Bree Farm, Universal City Walk. They're all over the place. And uh, they have a major presence at all the regional county fairs. But there is more to Richard than hot dogs. Apart from being a fellow member of Metal, which I talk about often, he is also an attorney, holds an MBA from USC and a bachelor's degree from UCLA. He's currently Managing Director of Clarion Partners, a real estate investment management firm with $24 billion, what's with a B, under management. He gained experience for the hot dog business from his experience managing shopping centres. That's one hell of a resume. Richard, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Thank you, Bob. I appreciate all the uh, the comments. Uh, you're going to give me delusions of adequacy, sir. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the history of pinks. I touched on it, but just give us a little bit more. Well, my parents, Paul and Betty Pink, were out of work in 1939, and they were looking for a job in a newspaper, and they ran across an ad for a hot dog cart. And uh, my mother said to my father, let's buy that hot dog cart. And he said, well, why? And she said, look, people have to eat. We're out of work. It's a good way for us to earn some money. And so he said, well, how much is the cart? And she said, it's $50. And he said, where are we going to get the $50? That's how broke they were back in 1939 at the time that my grandmother loaned them the $50 to buy that hot dog cart. And they pushed that hot dog cart from La Cienega, about two miles up to La Brea, rented that place where they are right now at the corner of La Brea and Melrose. And the rent at that time was $15 a month. Hot dogs were sold for 10 cents, Cokes for a nickel, and they offered curb service. And they operated that hot dog cart for the next two years, believe it or not, based on the electricity they got from a 200-yard extension cord that plugged into a neighboring hardware store that fired up that cart. In 1941, in 1941, my parents were told their, your rent is going from $15 a month to $25 a month, and percentage-wise, that's a big raise. Absolutely. And so they said, my God, they're going to keep raising the rent. He's going to push us out of business. What are we going to do? And they went to Bank of America, and that became the legendary story about Bank of America loaning my parents $4,000 to buy all that property right there on the corner of La Brea and Melrose. And that allowed them to stay in business for another 73 years. And uh, that hot dog cart turned into a hot dog stand. The one you see today is the one they built in 1946, still standing. Very little has changed. The thing is, is that it's right there on a great street on La Brea. They have terrific traffic in front. They have parking. It's a very unusual situation. And then, you know, they stayed in business all this time uh, off of that $50 investment, and then they borrowed the the, the money from Bank of America to buy the property. So they knew something about controlling your rent and controlling your occupancy cost, and they didn't want to have a landlord push them out of business, so they were able to buy that property and stay there all these years. That is a sensational story. I love that. Now, hot dogs. Anybody can make a hot dog. Anybody can um, open a hot dog stand. How did you become, and I talk on this program all the time about the need to differentiate yourself from your competitors. So how did you take a humble hot dog, and I'm not criticizing your hot dogs because they're sensational, but how do you take a humble hot dog and differentiate, differentiate yourself so well that you become an absolute cultural icon? How does that happen? Well, it isn't just a hot dog, okay? First of all, you got to start off with a hot dog that tastes great. Sure. and has something unique, some signature to it. In our case, it snaps when you bite into it. All right. But it isn't just that. Then you have to create some variety, some uniqueness, something that nobody else has. In our case, we created over 30 different combinations of hot dogs uh, with all different kinds of toppings, all different sorts of creations 
that made us unique, that differentiated us from every other hot dog stand in the city or maybe even in the country because I don't think anybody has our variety of combinations. And then the other thing is is that the chili. That was a sensational recipe my parents created way back when. We still have that same chili, and everybody loves it. I mean, if you don't have a hot dog, you have a bowl of chili. I mean, it is great. But beyond that, beyond that, it really takes fabulous service. I'll tell you, we have had our employees with us from 10 to 20 years, and we bonus them every weekend to reward them for giving excellent service. So it's not at the end of the year. We, we don't have any cap on salary. We say, look, you've been with us. You keep getting raises because we feel that they're partners of ours, that if they do well with our customers, the customers will keep coming back. The uniqueness of the atmosphere in 1946, nobody else has a hot dog stand as old as ours in Los Angeles that has the original atmosphere. And then on top of that, the key to it is promotion. You've got to get the name out. You've got to let people know you have a great hot dog stand and you're still proud. You're still passionate. And so every chance we get to do something like a Chili Dogs for Charity, something that a radio station, a TV station will pick up, publicize, so that we're not just depending on the one or two mile ring around our hot dog stand for customers. We reach out to the rest of Southern California. And now with the food channels and the travel channels, we reach out across the world. And everybody that comes to Hollywood says, look, I want to go where the celebrities go. I want to go someplace special. So we do the most we can to market and promote ourselves. And that's so vital, I think, in a business. Absolutely. So how did the celebrity connection get started? We are nearby a number of studios, Paramount Studios, 20th Century Fox, the old Charlie Chaplin Studios, Universal Studios, all these movie stars or wannabes that come into L.A. way back when, they didn't have any money. So they would go to a hot dog stand because our prices are low and so forth. They would go to a hot dog stand, and then, you know, they would see one movie, one one potential uh, movie star put his name, uh, his picture up on the wall at Pink's, and another one did that, and another one did that. We let it come up because it's Hollywood, after Absolutely. all. And they would pray they would get discovered by some famous director, some famous producer that would come in for a hot dog stand. And so pretty soon, our wall became loaded with movie stars or people that came out. I mean, Michael J. Fox supposedly got his his call for his very first uh his very first movie role, his very first was from the phone at Pink's. So, you know, Orson Welles used to come to Pink's. He holds the record for the most hot dogs consumed, 18 hot dogs at one sitting. <laughs> Howard Hughes used to come to Pink's. Spencer Tracy used to come. So everyone knew, you know, all these Hollywood stars, they, they could go to the fanciest restaurants, but all of them were basically from small towns. So they said, let's go to this hot dog stand. And all of a sudden, our our wall, our whole dining room wall got loaded with pictures where people said, I love your hot dogs. I come to L.A. and all I do is I bring my friends to eat your hot dogs. And so that's how we got some 200 pictures of movie stars, television stars on our wall. So what are the most popular hot dogs? 
Well, I'll tell you, every month I try to create a new hot dog, all right? Because, you know, you talk about the, the biggest companies in the world always have to innovate. The small companies have to innovate. Absolutely. So every month we try to create a new hot dog, something fresh, something that someone does, you know, hasn't had before. So some of the, the famous dogs that we have are the Three Dog Night, for example. Yeah. That's three hot dogs wrapped in a giant flour tortilla filled with cheese, bacon, chili, onions. We, we just created a Marlon Brando dog. The Brando family said, look, Marlon used to come here all the time. How about creating a dog after him? So we created a quarter-pound dog topped with mustard, onions, chili, shredded cheddar cheese. And then we have a lot of people from out of town, so I said, let's do something for Philadelphia. So we created a Philly cheesesteak dog topped with a grilled steak, grilled peppers, onions, American, and Swiss cheese all melted. And then at the 4th of July, every July, you know, which is hot dog month, we create Absolutely. the America the Beautiful Dog, which is the 12-inch jalapeno dog covered with pastrami and bacon and lettuce and chopped tomatoes. And then when the movie Lord of the Rings came out, we created a Lord of the Rings dog, which is a stretch hot dog with uh, uh, threaded through some about five onion rings, really great young, uh, onion rings, covered with a really yummy barbecue sauce. But our famous dog is the original. It's the stretch chili cheese dog, which is the nine-inch dog, all yep. beef, snaps when you bite into it, mustard, onions, and chili and cheese. Those are some of them. But, I mean, there's about 25, 30 more. You're making me feel really hungry. Now, we're running Good. out of time. We're running out of time. But why are people willing to stand in line for thirty minutes to an hour to buy a bloody hot dog? <laughs> well, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, they love the hot dogs, okay, and they have their favorites. They bring their friends in from all over the country, so they say, "Look, we're, you're in LA one time. You've got to go to Pink's." Other people say it's a it's a fun energetic line is a lot of people watching you're sitting right there on la brea yeah. you know it's just sort of a fun experience and they say it's quintessential la to stand in the line at pinks wait for your hot dog and then go back into our patio and just just down some two or three dogs with our you know bottled cokes and and drinks well, I've been there before, but you've, you've certainly inspired me to go back again really soon. Richard, great speaking with you. Now, if you'd like great to know more... Great speaking with you, Bob. Thank you. Now, if you'd like to know more about Richard and Pinks, go to pinkshollywood.com. That's pinkshollywood.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show after this short message. The American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management is one of the leading accreditation institutes in the world. Do you have the letters AISMM after your name? Do you have the AISMM accreditation certificate on your wall for your clients and colleagues to envy? Do you have the AISMM membership pin on your lapel? AISMM helps you do business. Join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management now. Go to AISMM.org. That's AISMM.org. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are 
listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on the Voice of America, Voice America Business Network. Now, 90% of the work that I do, apart from this radio program and with my speech presentations and my consulting, is work with entrepreneurs and early stage companies. So we really appreciate all the emails that we uh, get each week and all of the great ideas you tell us about. Um, I get um, inundated with fantastic proposals with just some of the most brilliant ideas and uh, it's terrific to get to receive those. I also love getting all the questions that you send because um, it's interesting that no matter where you are in the world or what business you're in, everybody's got the same problems. I, um, I remember a couple of years ago when I did a 10-city tour of Iran and uh, at the question times, and this is Iran, which I actually quite like Iran, but um, this is, it is Iran. And at question time, and I was with with speaking at the MBA colleges that are run by Mahan, and uh, the questions that I received in those in the question and answer sessions were the same questions that I'd get if I gave a presentation in Los Angeles, or in Sydney, or in London. So everybody's got the same issues, and uh, so this session the email session where I try to address what the questions that you ask is really important. So if you've got a great project that may be of benefit to all of us or if you can help us all be better at our own business or you've got some tips you'd like to pass on, please email me and we will get you on the show. And if we haven't answered your email yet, either on air or off, I promise you I'll get round to it. It's very difficult when you get um, bombarded with emails to be able to keep up, but we, we do our best. Now, my first email today is from Alison Longmire from Dearborn, Michigan, who asks, who's, well, says, I really enjoy your show, and I was wondering what you make of the war between Lyft and Uber. Well, this is interesting because we just mentioned uh, in the first half of the show that um, Uber seems to be killing Lyft at every turn, but um, and I've been touting Uber for a long time now, but during the week I came up with an article by Andrew Leonard who says that Uber's proving to be the embodiment of unrestrained hyper-capitalism, and uh, Andrew asked the questions, what happens when Uber wins, and it looks like the way things have gone in the last 12 months that Uber will win. So he asked, what is Uber? Is Uber a paragon of free market efficiency and technological innovation that's serving the greater convenience and comfort of the general public? Or is it living proof as to why capitalist societies require regulation? That is a bloody good question. A, probably a month or so ago, there was the revelation about the tactics that Uber's been deploying to recruit riders from a top competitor, Lyft, and uh, there has been realms and just 
reams and reams and reams and reams of commentary about it on um, on social media, in magazines, newspapers, whatever. So called Operation Slog, which Uber says is short for supplying long-term operations growth. Uber hired hundreds of private contractors in multiple cities and equipped them with multiple burner phones. That's always a bit suspicious. So their primary competitor, Lyft, could not identify recruiters and block them from using the service. They also gave them credit card numbers and recruitment kits and they mobilised them to lure Lyft drivers over to Uber. So if you can't get the customers, get the drivers. Pretty smart. Now, so the collateral damage to Lyft is extended beyond just siphoning away drivers. When an Uber recruiter ordered a ride and discovered that the driver was someone who had previously been recruited, they immediately cancelled the ride. So according to Lyft, Uber's been responsible for more than 5,000 cancelled rides on Lyft. That's a bit, you know, it's a bit, no, I, I guess in love and war and business, all's fair, but it doesn't seem that fair to me. So defenders of this no-holds-barred free market competition don't see anything to be uh, concerned or alarmed about. They argue that riders can only benefit from fierce competition and that the number of cancellations was pretty trivial compared to Lyft's total number of rides. Well, part of that might be true. And sure, customers benefit from fierce competition, but only up until the point that one of the competitors goes broke. And at that point, the pendulum swings, prices go up, service goes down, and the customer actually loses. So if you're inclined to see Uber as a ruthless and immoral profit-seeking company, then the latest news on Uber's deceptive tactics is just one more confirmation of how Uber seems to do be prepared to do almost anything at all to win. So whichever side you fall on here, the story's pretty fascinating. There's little doubt that Uber's the closest thing that we've got today to living, breathing, unrestrained capitalism. And they're playing it the way the robber barons play. From top to bottom, the company flaunts a street fighter ethos. They're going to win at all costs. And there's no question that they wake up every morning with the sole intention of totally destroying their competition by fair means or foul. Now, Uber's ambitions are limitless, and now it's got the money to do almost anything it wants. It's, it's kind of ironic that um, Uber's got so much cash in the bank that it doesn't have to comply with the most basic premise of capitalism, the notion that survival is predicated on making more money than you spend. Well, they're in a position where they can spend and lose money solely to put their competition out of business. 
they've got access to an astonishing $1.5 billion in capital. So they're able to um, simultaneously wage war against Lyft and against regulators in multiple cities, engage in recruitment wars, give out burner phones like candy, subsidise drivers at below cost and employ whomever and whatever is necessary to achieve long-term goals. So it's not exactly unbridled capitalism, is it? It's um, more unbridled capitalism with a whole bunch of advantages built in. So the real question we should be asking ourselves is what happens when local taxi companies are all out of business, and I have no problem with that, although hopefully some of the taxi companies will lift their game. Um, Taxis really have been dreadful in the main. But what happens when the taxi companies are gone and Lyft and uh, a number of the others are all destroyed? Or if they're not destroyed, they're reduced to fringe players. And the scary thing about Uber, it'll have dominant market position in every major city on the planet. It doesn't matter whether you're in Sydney or in London or wherever the hell you are, there's Uber all over the place. And that's because they have this unlimited barrel of money. So what happens when um, their priorities turn from spending cash, which is what they're doing now, and heaps of it, to happen to need to generate money? What happens then? What happens to the labour, the Uber drivers, when people have no alternative but Uber? What happens when they're driverless cars and there's no drivers and Uber's the only alternative? What happens when it rains and the surge pricing spikes then there's nowhere else for anyone to go except Uber. And a company with the um, street-fighting ethos of Uber isn't going to let drivers unionise. So when they're the only game in town, they're certainly not going to pay their drivers any more than is required by the harsh laws of competition. So in the States, if you're an Uber driver, you're going to have to work a million hours a week to make any money. And uh, when self-driving cars happen and they're proven to be cheaper and safer, which isn't very far away, I might add, um, all those drivers are going to be dumped in a nanosecond. They will be gone. So making the case that drivers are benefiting from the current recruitment wars might be true. It's certainly true today. But is it going to be true tomorrow or in a month's time or in two months' time? 
and the more powerful Uber gets, the more leverage it's going to have over its drivers, which is pretty scary. So hopefully we're going to realise that power is great as Uber, when you've got power, as much power as Uber, somebody needs to check it. But then they have such a war chest with one and a half billion dollars that they can fight you and probably win. So hopefully Uber, through its own success, will demonstrate where the lines need to be drawn for the general good. I hope so. So when Uber's the only game in town, the necessity for comprehensive requirements for commercial insurance and background checks will be obvious. I think it's only going to take a couple of big accidents or something to go terribly wrong um, with their vehicle and driver scrutiny to... um, to set people up in arms against them. So when Uber starts using its logistics clout and unlimited investment capital to go after what's next, I would suspect UPS and FedEx. I reckon they're going to be next because It's a great model. They can pick up parcels and deliver the short-term deliveries very quickly, very efficiently, which means that um, the UPS and FedEx are probably going to be left with overnight and interstate deliveries. But, of course, there's no reason why the interstate deliveries can't be handled. The overnight deliveries, at least, can be handled by Uber as well. So what's going to happen with hire cars? Will Uber be able to muscle in on Hertz and Avis and Europe car? Where's the, where do they stop? So we need to then think about the antitrust issues. If they start knocking off industry after industry after industry and have the muscle to do it. Now, Of course, they haven't won yet, but the smart money's got to be on Uber. And when you've got one and a half billion dollars to play with, and when you um, allow capitalism to play without any rules, you're going to learn all over again how labour gets exploited under that scenario, and we may just sit back and think that some of the rules we had weren't weren't a bad idea. So um, makes you wonder why we had rules in the first place. That's a pretty good argument, Andrew. I've got to admit, I've changed my thinking. I'm not sure. I was a great admirer of, um, of Uber, but now I'm not quite so sure. Alison, I'm glad you raised it, and we will send out a copy of my new book, not so new now, but the new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition. It's still available at bookstores, still at Amazon, still selling very well. And I'll guarantee you that if you 
get yourself a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, you will find that uh, all the information in there to make your business very successful, it covers everything from traditional media to social media and all of the things in between and all of the disciplines that you need to make your business successful. My second email today is from Jeff Gallagher from Santa Barbara in California. And Jeff writes, thanks for a terrific show. I have a staff of 15 people and I'm interested in your opinion about the benefits of open plan offices. I've read a few articles on the issue and there seems to be a lot of arguments, excuse me, both for and against. What are your thoughts? Well, the modern open office was designed for team building and camaraderie, but um, research has confirmed that open plan offices are associated with greater employee stress, poorer co-worker relations, reduced satisfaction with the physical environment. Um, there's a lot of noise in open plan offices, and research shows that it undermines motivation, and a lot of um, workers deal with this pro, uh, problem by wearing earbuds or headphones. There's also just no privacy whatsoever. And uh, without walls, workers are likely to have this, unlike, more likely to have casual conversations that um, inspire new ideas. So I think the while research shows that conversations are more frequent, they tend to be short and superficial because everybody's listening to you. I know a couple of companies that have tried open plan and have folded it because it just simply hasn't worked. Um, actually, in a study released last month by a group of German and Swiss researchers, participants who requested help with the task performed better, while those who supplied assistance did much worse. So they recommend that workers set aside a block of time for a few hours each day when they are not to be disturbed. Jeff, there's many benefits to open plan, but my view that on balance, it works against camaraderie and productivity, particularly if there's more than half a dozen people. Again, thanks for your email, and we'll send you out a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blinch Your Competition, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Jeff. That was a good email. Don't forget, I want to hear from you, so visit my website at bobpritchard.com, sign up for my newsletter. Email me, tweet me, become my contact on LinkedIn. We use LinkedIn all the time. Great, great, great application. So tell me what it is that you want me to talk about. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard on the Voice America Business Network, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.